This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Roundtable listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Gravel, epidemiologist, family medicine resident, and soon-to-be emergency medicine resident, and one of your now no longer new regular rotating co-hosts. I'm very happy to introduce my co-host today, Matthew Jeffkins. Matt is an internal medicine resident at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Matt is also a pharmacist by training and worked as a clinical pharmacist in Northern Ontario for a number of years before going back to medical school. Matt, welcome to the show. Uh, Johnny, it's uh, my pleasure to be joining you here on the rounds table. I'm a huge fan of these podcasts. Definitely a unique opportunity to actually be contributing to one. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's dive right in here, Matt. What article are you going to be telling us about today? Okay, listeners, the paper I picked today is titled Haloperidol and Zepracidone for the Treatment of Delirium in Critical Illness by Eli and a whole list of other authors that I won't list for you. But they're all part of the MIND USA group, which stands for Modifying the Impact of ICU-Associated Neurological Dysfunction. This paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2018. Great. Before we get into the details, Matt, any disclosures or conflicts from the authors or yourself? Uh, Nothing for myself. As for the study, it was supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health and by the Department of Veterans Affairs Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center. So overall, nothing that I can imagine would influence the findings and interpretation of this study. Great. Thanks, Matt. What's the bottom line here? So this was a randomized, double-blind, controlled trial comparing intravenous haloperidol or zeprazidone to placebo in reducing the duration of ICU delirium in patients with acute respiratory failure or shock and hypo or hyperactive delirium. Overall, they found that the use of either haloperidol or zeprazidone did not significantly reduce the duration of delirium compared to placebo. Hey Matt, as a young blooming internist, why'd you choose this article? So ICU delirium is a constant challenge whenever I've been in the ICU. And as a junior resident, it hasn't been very much, but I did do some electives as a medical student. And as the authors uh, lay out very nicely, it affects between 50 and 75 patients who are mechanically ventilated. And some studies actually support about 80%. And ideally, reducing its duration is important, especially when you consider that patients with delirium have higher mortality, longer length of stays, and higher risk of long-term cognitive impairment and other psychiatric illnesses. Outside of that, we've all had challenging patients with delirium in every part of the hospital, and medications are often the fastest and simplest solution. So I found this paper rather intriguing, in that treatment does not necessarily mean a reduction in the length of disease. The drugs we tend to always reach for are typical antipsychotics such as haloperidol and atypicals such as zeprazidone, But studies on them up to now are pretty conflicting. And in fact, here in Canada, we don't really use uh, zeprazidone at all. But it's also important to keep in mind that no drug uh, comes without risk, and antipsychotics are no exception. So we should always consider their use, even if we're just used to doing it. Some side effects that come to mind are excessive and unnecessary sedation, extrapyramidal side effects, and not to mention QTC prolongation. Great. Thanks for that. I've personally seen all sorts of different antipsychotic use for delirium in the emergency department, on the floor, and in the ICU. So tell me more. What what is the summation of evidence on these? Any big meta-analyses or reputable guidelines on the subject? Uh, John, you read my mind. So the question becomes, given the high prevalence of delirium in mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU and rather liberal use of antipsychotics, both objectively and subjectively, What is the evidence currently, and are we treating delirium in hopes of reducing the length or for short-term stability? 
I won't get into too many details, but to date, there have been a few smaller randomized control trials looking at antipsychotics, both typical and atypical, showing either no benefit or conflicting results. One of the earlier pilot trials was done by the MIND group, published in Critical Care Medicine in 2010. It was titled Feasibility, Efficacy, and Safety of Antipsychotics for Intensive Care Unit Delirium, the MIND Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trial. This trial looked at delirium treatment in 101 mechanically ventilated patients in medical and surgical ICUs with haloperidol, zoprasidone, or placebo. And overall, neither haloperidol nor zoprasidone significantly reduced the duration of delirium compared with placebo. And no differences were found in secondary clinical outcomes, including hospital length of stay, mortality, and ventilator-free days. Another study is the HOPE ICU trial, which was published in The Lancet in 2013, and included approximately 140 mechanically ventilated adult patients within 72 hours of admission. These patients received 2.5 milligrams of haloperidol intravenously every 8 hours, or saline placebo, irrespective of coma or delirium status. And overall, haloperidol did not affect the prevalence or duration of delirium. In terms of guidelines, the one that really comes to mind that was just published in October of 2018 is uh, the Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Prevention and Management of Pain, Agitation, Sedation, Delirium, Immobility, and Sleep Disruption in Adult Patients in the ICU. But I'll get into this a little bit later. Awesome. I realize, you know, the main point of today is us talking about pharmacological approaches to treating delirium in the ICU, but can you just briefly mention conservative measures? Uh, you're right, John. We sort of did the, uh, hear what we actually do in the hospital and maybe just d- jump to medications too quickly. Other conservative measures in treating ICU delirium include optimizing nutrition and hydration status, early mobilization, preventing skin breakdown, and encouraging early communication and orientation. Furthermore, in this paper specifically, I really did appreciate that trial clinicians were educated about the ABCDEF bundle. This bundle stands for assess, prevent, and manage pain, perform both spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials with safety screens and failure criteria, adequate choice of analgesia and sedation, delirium assessment and management, early mobility and exercise, and family engagement and empowerment. Previous research has shown that for every 10% increase in compliance with this bundle, there is a decrease in ICU delirium and overall increase in survival. Awesome. Eloquently said. Let's get into the grid here. Tell me about the study design and inclusion criteria. All right, Johnny. As I mentioned before, this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 3 trial that screened 20,914 patients, but ultimately only included 566 patients in a one-to-one-to-one randomization. It was conducted at 16 medical centers in the United States. Researchers obtained written, informed consent from their patients or their authorized representatives, when possible, before the onset of delirium. Consent needed to be obtained within 72 hours of meeting inclusion criteria for non-comatose patients and within 120 hours for comatose patients. Screening took place by researchers trained in the CAM-ICU assessment tool, and patients were assessed twice daily until delirium was present or until death or until discharge from the ICU, development of an exclusion criterion, which I'll get to a bit later, or a maximum of five days. 
And for those of you who are not familiar with the CAM ICU, it is a validated tool that identifies delirium on the basis of the following criteria, an acute change or fluctuating course of mental status, plus inattention, and either altered level of consciousness or disorganized thinking. Big study. Tell me about the three groups and the randomization. Okay, I'll start with the inclusion criteria. This involved medical or surgical ICU patients with invasive or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, patients on vasopressors, or those on an intraaortic balloon pump. There's also a whole list of exclusion criteria, which I won't list here for the sake of time. Patients were eligible for random assignment to a trial group if they had delirium, as defined by the CAM ICU. And patients were assessed twice daily by the CAM ICU tool and the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale. They were considered to be in delirium if one of the two assessments were positive. The RAS scoring system differentiated hyperactive versus hypoactive delirium. And overall, randomization took place via computer-generated, permuted block randomization scheme with stratification according to the trial site. In terms of blinding, the research personnel, managing clinicians, the patients, and their families were not aware of any of the trial group assignments. Amazing. So now that we have a pretty good idea of who these groups were, um, tell me about the interventions. After randomization, the first dose of trial drug or placebo was administered. Patients younger than 70 years old received 0.5 mL of placebo or 2.5 mg of haloperidol or 5 mg of zeprasidone. Patients older than 70 received half of the starting doses listed above. Overall, research personnel assessed patients and decided to escalate the doses based on the presence of delirium. Medications were given at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. and could be doubled up to a maximum dose of 10 mg for haloperidol and 20 mg for zeprasidone. If the patient did not have delirium, doses were halved, and not having delirium was defined by two consecutive negative CAM ICU scores. The intervention period was a total of 14 days. Awesome. So what were the outcomes they, were, they, they sought out to measure? So the primary outcome in this trial was uh, days alive without delirium or coma, defined as the number of days that a patient was alive and free from both delirium and coma during the 14-day intervention period. Hey Matt, is this an accepted outcome for this type of work? Remind me, the patients were obviously not in a coma prior to the start of the study, right? Any thoughts on why they chose these, this 14-day? In reading the paper, I couldn't find a direct rationale. But thinking about this, ICU delirium usually has a median duration of around three days. I believe 14 days would be sufficient to capture days free of delirium or coma. Great. Any other outcomes, Matt? What about safety? In this trial, safety endpoints included the incidence of torsade de point, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and the severity of extrapyramidal symptoms. Uh, extrapyramidal uh, symptoms were measured using the modified Simpson-Angus scale, which is a validated scale for neuroleptic-induced Parkinsonism in schizophrenia patients. But I believe it was a good surrogate uh, for this purpose. Okay, okay, so I'm seeing it. I think our listeners have a pretty good idea of the setup. How did they analyze this? Give this epidemiologist some more statistics. Johnny, stats, my favorite. All right, here we go. The data was analyzed using an intention-to-treat approach and compared the impact of haloperidol, zeprasidone, and placebo on the primary endpoint using a Kruskal-Wallis test in the unadjusted analyses and then proportional odds logistic regression in adjusted analyses. Great, Matt. Just for quick for our listeners, what is a Kruskal-Wallis test? 
Oh boy. Well, I'm no statistician or epidemiologist, but simply put, the Kruskal Wallace test is a rank based non parametric test that can be used to determine if there are statistically significant differences between two or more groups of an independent variable on a continuous or ordinal dependent variable. It is considered the non parametric alternative to the one way ANOVA. Awesome. And then proportional odds logistic regression is a bit more common for our listeners. That way, the way I think about that is it's really an extension of traditional logistic regression modeling, but that applies to dichotomous dependent variables, allowing for more than two response categories, which in this case we had six. Okay, drum roll, Matt. Tell me about what they found. Okay, well, this is uh, what we've all been waiting for. So I'll start off with the baseline characteristics. Needless to say, they were all similar between the three groups with a median age around 60. There was uh, approximately 45% female patients. White patients made up approximately 85% of each group. At the start of the trial, 90% had hypoactive delirium. And overall, the three most common admission diagnoses were ARDS, sepsis, and airway protection. I would have liked to see a little bit more clearance on the definition of airway protection. Furthermore, the median Apache 2 score was similar between the three groups at around 28 to 30. I'll start by saying that the duration and the number of doses of the trial drug or placebo received by the patients during the 14-day intervention period were similar between the three groups. And a trial drug or placebo was permanently discontinued at similar frequency and for similar reasons in all three groups. As I mentioned earlier, almost 90% had hypoactive delirium at the time of randomization. Going back uh, to the literature, purely agitated delirium affects less than 2% of ICU patients. It's mostly hypoactive or mixed picture. And as for some numbers here, overall, the number of days without delirium was not increased by the use of medications. It was 8.5 days with placebo, 7.9 days with haloperidol, and 8.7 days with zepracidone. P-value was 0.26 for overall effect across all three groups. Furthermore, there was no difference in secondary endpoints, and excessive sedation was the most common safety endpoint. But overall, it really didn't differ between the three groups. Great summary, Matt. Any interesting aspects of this study that caught your eye that you want to tell us about? Most definitely. There's, there's a few. First, although haloperidol is one of the most commonly used drugs to treat ICU delirium, this study shows that there's no benefit with typical antipsychotics like haloperidol or atypical antipsychotics like zepracidone. I think it really highlights the fact that we need to study and, and focus more on non-pharmacological supportive care and treating underlying risk factors in the management of ICU delirium. Other opportunities include focusing on early mobilization, minimizing sedation, early communication, and pain management. With that being said, there are instances where patients may be at risk of harming themselves or others as a result of their or delirium, in which case pharmacological options are reasonable in the short term for safety. Keeping in mind that we don't want these patients to remain on antipsychotics well after their delirium has passed, and oftentimes these patients end up staying on antipsychotics when they're on their ward days or weeks after their delirium has cleared. Initially, when I was uh, thinking about a response here, I was going to say another approach would be preventing ICU delirium in patients who are at high risk. And one agent that shows promise is dexmedetomidine. But interestingly, the PADAS guidelines that I mentioned earlier don't recommend the use of this drug. What about limitations, Matt? Well, open-label trials may introduce bias into the study. Also, the trial was powered to detect a two-day difference between the groups with respect to the primary endpoint. 
So there's definitely a possibility that the effect size of less than two day difference in days alive without delirium or coma wouldn't have been seen here. Furthermore, in terms of side effects, a study was not powered to detect any significant difference in adverse effects in antipsychotics used in ICU delirium. So on balance, weighing the strengths, the weaknesses, what are your thoughts on this study? Well, it was a very well-designed, large study, but my biggest issue is that there are serious risks associated with the use of antipsychotics. And really, this study was not powered to detect them. I think future research will ideally focus on a multi-dimensional approach to the prevention and management of ICU delirium that minimizes the use of antipsychotics. So Matt, we, we touched on it briefly a bit earlier, but where does this study fall into the totality of recent evidence on this? Well, just earlier in 2018, the PADAS guidelines previously summed up the evidence of antipsychotic use for the treatment of ICU delirium. And really, this was uh, just published one month before our paper here. They identified five RCTs involving haloperidol or other atypical antipsychotics. None of the trials showed an association with shorter duration of delirium, a reduced duration of mechanical ventilation, or ICU length of stay, or overall decreased mortality. I would say that this is the sixth study that supports that there's no role for routine use of antipsychotics in the treatment of ICU delirium. So Matt, on the floor of the ICU, is this going to affect the way you practice at all? Well, as a junior resident, I think I will definitely think twice before starting these medications. I don't think I'll be using these routinely, and if I do need to use them, I'll ensure that there's a good indication uh, for their short-term use only. Most importantly, when reviewing medications prior to discharging patients to the ward or, or home, it's important that these medications are stopped prior to ICU discharge. Well said. Okay, John, let's uh, switch it up here. Pressure's off me and uh, you're up. What study are, are you going to be talking about uh, today? Great. Thanks, Matt. I'm going to be talking about a paper published in The Lancet by uh, Dennis Attal in the Focus Trial Collaboration in December 2018, just a few weeks ago, titled Effects of Fluoxetine on Functional Outcomes After Acute Stroke, Focus, a Pragmatic Double-Blind Randomized Controlled Trial. Study was funded by the UK Stroke Association and in the INHR Health Technology Assessment Program. Awesome, John. I'm really excited about this. Any conflicts of interest that you want to uh, lay out for us? None for me, obviously. And according to the disclosures in the paper, none of the funding organizations had any role in study design, data collection, data analysis, data interpretation, or writing of the report, or even the decision to publish. The corresponding author group had full access to all the data in the study and had final responsibility for the decision to submit for publication. Okay, back to the good stuff. What's the bottom line here? So, this was a pragmatic, multi-center, parallel group, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial done at 103 hospitals in the United Kingdom of 3,127 patients recruited from 2012 to 2017 with a clinical stroke diagnosis, enrolled and randomly assigned between two days and 15 days after onset, and had focal neurodeficits that were either randomized to receive 20 milligrams of fluoxetine or placebo. Really quite a mouthful, but the bottom line here, fluoxetine 20 milligrams given daily for six months after acute stroke does not seem to improve functional outcomes. Although the treatment reduced the occurrence of depression, it increased the frequency of bone fractures. Wow, John, 103 hospitals. This is quite the trial. Why is this important, and why did the authors uh, set out uh, to study this? I mean, logically, strokes are common cause of morbidity and mortality. 
Plus, depression and other mental health issues are pretty common post-stroke. But tell me more. Good thoughts. Essentially, a lot of work has suggested that SSRIs might improve overall outcomes after stroke. Any big studies out there? In 2011, the FLAME, Fluoxetine for Motor Recovery After Acute Ischemic Stroke trial, which was a small but double-blinded placebo-controlled multi-center trial, showed improvement in motor function, independence in daily life, and less depression in the group receiving fluoxetine compared to placebo. There's also a Cochrane review of randomized controlled trials of SSRIs versus controls, suggesting that SSRIs might reduce post-stroke disability, although they note a lot of bias in the studies. Namely, if patients were de had depression at baseline were included, the effect size, unsurprisingly, was much bigger. The question still remains, do the possible benefits on functional outcomes outweigh the harms of systematically using an SSRI, namely fluoxetine, post-stroke? So... The focus trial was really to ascertain whether patients with a clinical stroke diagnosis would have improved functional outcomes with a six-month course of fluoxetine compared to placebo, longer than most other trials because they have data up to one year post-stroke, and a deep dive on possible harms. All right, Johnny, it's uh, time for the methods. Tell us about the study design. When and where did it take place? I'm going to repeat myself again, but the focus was a pragmatic multi-center, parallel group, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial done at 103 hospitals in the UK. Eligible patients were randomly assigned between 2 days and 15 days after stroke onset to receive either 20 milligrams of fluoxetine or placebo daily for 6 months. They had to have a persisting focal neurological deficit at the time of the randomization that was severe enough to warrant 6 months of treatment. All right, and uh, the study population here? Patients were eligible if they were aged 18 years or older, had a clinical diagnosis of acute stroke with brain imaging compatible with intracerebral hemorrhage or ischemic stroke. Patients were excluded if they had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, except were secondary to a primary intracerebral hemorrhage. They had another life-threatening illness that would make 12-month survival unlikely. Unsurprisingly, were excluded if they had a history of allergy to fluoxetine or had any contraindications to fluoxetine, including hepatic or renal impairment. And most interestingly, if they had current or recent depression treated with an SSRI. Okay, so now that we have a good grasp on who these patients were and how the study was set up, what was the intervention and how did they uh, do this? Patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one -one ratio to receive fluoxetine or placebo. They use a minimization algorithm to achieve optimum balance between treatment groups for the following factors. Delay since stroke onset, computer-generated predictors of six-month outcome in presence of a motor deficit or aphasia. Fluoxetine 20 mg or placebo were administered to patients orally once daily for six months. Patients were essentially sent home at discharge from hospital with 186 pills. Important to note in home medication trials, six-month adherence was roughly estimated by measuring and recording the date of the first and last dose taken, the number of missed doses while in hospital, and the capsule count when unused capsules were returned at the end. That's a tough one. A lot of these patients were quite sick and probably had a lot of other meds. Complicated psychosocial situations and may have been dependent on caregivers to give them medication. I digress, John. What were the outcomes? Primary outcome was functional status, measured with a modified Rankin scale at the six-month follow-up. What about the secondary outcomes? So the list of secondary outcomes is rather extensive. 
survival at six and 12 months, functional status at 12 months, arm, hand, leg, foot strength, mobility, communication, understanding, memory and thinking, mood and emotions, health-related quality of life, and on and on and on. As I said, extensive lists of outcomes can be found in the table two in the paper. Adverse events and safety outcomes found in table three were also pretty extensive. Reoccurrent stroke, including ischemic and hemorrhagic, acute coronary syndromes, new depression. Again, listeners, check out table three. No one wants to hear me list these 150 things. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for laying that out uh, for us, John. From that list and looking at this paper, this is a ton of data. So how did they analyze all of this? For the primary outcome, the modified Rankin scale from 0 to 6, like you mentioned, they did an ordinal analysis expressing the result as an odds ratio adjusted with logistic regression for the variables in the minimization algorithm. They then did Cox proportional hazard modeling to analyze the effect of treatment on survival up to 12 months and compared the frequency of other outcomes, the extensive list that I just described, by simply calculating the differences in proportions between treatment groups. They also did a wide range of sensitivity analyses, including a total analysis using a per-protocol approach instead of the intention to treat, but I won't get into that here. Okay, John, bring it uh, all together for me here. What did they find? So between September 2nd, 2012 and March 31st, 2017, 3,152 patients consented, 3,127 were enrolled. 1,564 were allocated to fluoxetine and 1,563 were allocated to placebo. Based on characteristics, the two treatment groups were well-balanced and can be seen in Table 1, and according to the authors, were similar to those of unselected patients with stroke admitted to other UK hospitals. The median duration of treatment was 185 days in the fluoxetine group and 183 days in the placebo group. So, essentially the way I see it here, about two-thirds of the patients took the study medication for at least 150 days. Tell me about the outcomes. The primary outcome was similar in, the, in both groups, with a common odds ratio of 0.951 and a very insignificant p-value. From a safety standpoint, patients allocated fluoxetine were less likely than those allocated placebo to be diagnosed with new depression at six months. Those allocated fluoxetine, though, had an increase of bone fractures compared with those allocated placebo, um, with no other significant differences in any other secondary outcomes at six months. Wow, I I really hope they had a statistician. John, uh, any interesting aspects of the study that uh, you want to comment on? Well, first, purely from a curiosity standpoint, I would love to know the cost and the number of research assistants. 3,000 patients across 103 hospitals with outcomes ascertained up to a year. The huge sample size here, really reducing the random error and increasing internal validity and the wide range of hospitals making really a strong case for externativity, um, at least in the United Kingdom. A major strength here is also that less than 1% of patients were lost to follow-up. I think taking that into consideration, there's some pretty solid ground to stand on here to say that fluoxetine really didn't have much of an impact on functional outcomes. The increase in bone fractures is a bit peculiar, though according to the authors has been reported in a number of observational studies. Any pharmacological thoughts, Matt? Uh, To be honest with you, I'm not too sure. Um, I never thought as fluoxetine as one of the medications to lower bone density. Definitely something to look into. Okay, John, are there any other important limitations on the study that we haven't discussed? So as I said, the very tiny loss to follow-up is a strength. But on the other hand, a large limitation of focus was the moderate adherence to the trial medication, which would, at least theoretically, bias towards the null. Though, the authors argue adherence measured in focus was superior to that reported in routine clinical practice. And I mean, as a primary care provider, I would probably agree, 
and again, didn't differ substantially between the two treatment groups. One could possibly argue that the fact that outcomes are measured by mail surveys and phone interviews instead of face-to-face -face is a limitation, but I'm not convinced, especially since this is likely a large contributor to the high retention rates of patients, as traveling to perform this study may have greatly deterred many of these people. So, on the balance, what are your thoughts? Will this affect your practice in any way? It's a big and well-designed study showing that fluoxetine 20 milligrams given daily for six months after an acute stroke did not influence patients' functional outcomes, but did decrease the occurrence of depression, unsurprisingly, and increase the occurrence of bone fractures. So, much more work needed here before routine use of fluoxetine post-stroke. Though, it still remains a solid option to treat diagnosed clinical depression post-stroke. We see a lot of people post-stroke in primary care, but the status quo remains. Treat depression post-stroke, as I do the rest of the time, with a mixture of pharmacological and psychosocial therapeutic measures. And the authors do allude to a number of ongoing trials, so we shall see. Great. Okay, so that brings our papers to a close, which means it's time for the Good Stuff segment. Matt, tell our listeners what else you've been reading. Uh, well, Johnny, as uh, you're well aware, I do spend quite a bit of time on Twitter, mostly for the um, abundance of medicine-related uh, articles and physicians that I follow. And uh, recently I came across a, a great article uh, by First 10 EM about the performance under pressure. It's a really long read, but it's definitely worth it as it covers everything from the background literature on performance in medicine to ways to prepare yourself uh, for performing under pressure. It's written by Justin Morgenstern. This is a common name in the emergency medicine uh, foam med world. He essentially makes the point that in emergency medicine, though applicable to all medical specialties in my opinion, we often tend to think of ourselves as maybe too perfect. We thrive in acute medical situations. We prepare for them. We visualize them. But the reality is that we are all human. We feel stress. We feel anxiety. And we all have uh, different coping mechanisms. Some good and maybe some bad. He then goes on a long road on the science behind the stress, the physiology, the psychology, and then performance. Not something that I would normally make it through, but it really is a great read. What about you, John? I caught a cool piece in the CMAJ in January titled, Are Medical Editors Responsible If Articles They Publish Cause Harm? You know, a bit of a sensational title, I admit, but fascinating here. Essentially, a few years ago, I'm sure most listeners remember, the BMJ published an analysis article that argued that statins have no overall benefit for patients at low risk of heart disease. The name of the study was, should people at low risk of cardiovascular disease take a statin? These authors essentially made the argument that statins have absolutely no health benefit in anyone with less than a 10% predicted 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease. Months later, the media exploded as a number of people complained that the side effects of statins were quite overreported in that study. The BMJ ended up correcting the article, but the debate continues. The journal's been pushing for an independent review of the trial data. And in the interim, particularly in the United Kingdom, thousands of people have stopped their statins. So whose responsibility is that? There's two sides to this argument. Thomas Plong, a professor of applied ethics and philosophy, who wrote a paper on this recently, makes the argument that the journal editors have a responsibility for such harms. A lot of responsibility to put on a small group of people. Others contend the opposite and that the primary responsibility of journal editors is ensuring the integrity of research. I tend to agree here. Anyways, check it out. Great read. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for tuning in, listeners. Thanks, Matt, for being here. And until next time. Thank you so much, uh, John. 
Browns Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>